This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we examine the gospel narrative of Mark, noting his distinct audience and the intentional methods he used to communicate the euangelion to them. The euangelion. It means we need to go back and do just a little bit of review. Where have we been in session three? Let's see. Start talking about Hellenism. What was Hellenism, Brent? Remind us. It is the, uh, the gospel idea of... Everything will be provided for you. We'll give you all of the things that you need. There's a lot of you in your explanation there. Yes. What is the overarching? And it comes from which which worldview? It comes from uh, Greek. From the Greeks, right? And yeah. what was the driving like tenant? How did they get up? How did they get to this point where it was all about you and your and? Uh, well, previously the gods had been at the center of everything, and now man is at the center of everything. Perfect. And this, would you imagine that uh, we have some issues with a biblical worldview with this new Greek understanding? It doesn't really mesh very well together. Or at least with many people as they view it. And so we had to look at the different responses that uh, they had um, to this arrival of Hellenism on the scene. And so we spent a bunch of podcasts at the beginning of this session talking about um, Herodians. And well, let's review the groups. Who are the Herodians, Brent? The Herodians actually did find a way to make the uh, Greek worldview mesh with the biblical worldview. Yeah, this is great. The Herodians said, I'll take a little bit of theater. I'll take a little bit of luxury. I'll take a little bit of leisure. Take a little bit of plumbing. Take a little bit of health care. And I'll have my synagogue and my God worship. Uh, I guess maybe next to them we could put the Sadducees. Who were they? They were the priests. Basically the same same idea. But they had this call to priesthood. And they were completely corrupt. Yep. Corrupted this priestly system that God had established centuries and centuries before. Um, let's see. Uh, um, then we had the Essenes. Who were the Essenes? They were the few, the proud uh, yeah. priests who broke off and said, we will not do this. And they went hid in the desert. They didn't really hide, I guess, but yeah. they were effectively hidden because nobody wanted to be out there. And they uh, devoted themselves to learning the text and copying the text and walking the text. Excellent. Then we had uh, two groups we called the Hasidim. One group would be the Zealots. Who were they? What was their response? They said, uh, we are going to do the right thing and we'll kill the Romans who get in our way. Yep, that's right. And then there was one group that said, uh, we're going we're gonna to take that same approach, but um, I'm flipping the script here. We're going to take the same approach, but we're not going to use the sword. Uh, we're not going to use physical violence, but we're going to take that same zeal and devotion. Which group is that? The Pharisees. Pharisees. Excellent. And so then after that, we talked about <clears throat> this idea of euangelion. Um, and, and what did we say euangelion was? It is the gospel or the good news of a new kingdom on the scene. A new king and a new kingdom. And the euangelion is this announcement of a new king and a new kingdom. Everything is about to change. I have good news, the messenger would say. The courier would stand out on his little, not the courier. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Brent? The person that stands out in mm. the herald. Herald, yes. Yes. He'd stand out on his, we actually found in like places like Prine, his herald box where he would stand. He would stand out and he would pronounce a good news, a euangelion. There's a new king and a new kingdom and your life is about to get great. Um, and so the gospel writers take this idea of a euangelion, a good news of a new king and a new kingdom, and they write their own gospels. And so last podcast, we looked at Matthew. What did we say that his agenda was? 
his agenda is the mumser, the mumser, the, the yeah. outsider, the uh, set aside, the ones that society doesn't care about. Yeah, and particularly religious society, right? Because his audience is who? Uh, the Jews. The Jews. So he writes this Jewish gospel to a Jewish audience and says, "We we really are used to and we value this religious system, but this religious system has forced some people to the margins." Some of us are more guilty of it than others. But all those people that we think because of our religious system are on the outside, God is inviting them onto the inside. And we need to be very careful about where we find ourselves. We've talked a lot about alien, orphan, and widow. Yes. Which obviously would would be in this, but I'm assuming it's a a broader context at this point. Well, yeah. And at this point, uh, yeah. Let me think about that. Uh, They would have a hard time associating the commands of the foreigner, the alien, because they would feel like they're the oppressed ones. And yet I think Matthew would challenge that and say, wait a minute, I think there are outsiders. Maybe there are aliens. They just don't look the same as they would have back in the Levitical system. Orphans. Um, I, I think in their culture, they're not doing the worst job in their history of taking care of the AOW. Um, but I think Matthew's point is just kind of like what you're saying. Like, I think we're missing... We might be taking care of aliens, orphans, and widows. Maybe, maybe not. We're doing a somewhat decent job of that, but we're missing a whole other subset of people, a group of people that we have made aliens, orphans, and widows um, just because of the way that we treat them and the way that we see the world and read the Bible. So there we go. So let's dive into Mark today. Mark is our second gospel. Many people would say Mark is the first gospel uh, written. Um, definitely some shared material. I think last podcast, and I talk about Q? Yeah. Q material, Q source, source Q. Um, a lot of just v- verbatim uh, quotes that overlap Matthew and Mark and just exact same wording. And so a lot of people think there had to have been some source material. Either one gospel writer wrote first and the other one just deliberately copied it, or there's some kind of source material that has been um, circulated or exchanged. Uh, and I, I, I fall into that form of opinion that there's some kind of Q source out there. Perhaps one of those disciples you never really hear about other than in the list of the disciples. It's like that guy's in the back right yeah, yeah, down yeah. on a... <laughs> That's right. Well, and you have to remember, like, even even if we give these Gospels early dates, there's still a, a couple decades between the events themselves and when they pin this Gospel. And so what do you do for 20 years? At some point, you're... you're you are. You might not physically be writing down, but I assume even you write them down on some level. Like you, you have to have some kind of source of what did the rabbi teach us before a gospel gets written. What what did the rabbi say? And that has to be circulated. We'll talk a little bit more that about that next podcast with the Gospel of Luke. But so, Mark, uh, let's just deal with the immediate context because that's just going to pretty much tell us the whole story for Mark. Mark's audience is different. Who is the audience to remind ourselves? Who is the audience of Matthew? Uh, the Jews. The Jews. Uh, Mark's audience. Now, who is Mark? Is Mark a Jew? Mark is, yes. Yeah, John Mark. John Mark is, uh, and there's some debate about which Mark we're dealing with here. Um, almost all of them would be Jewish, but um, uh, I believe this is the same John Mark uh, that we read about in other places in the scriptures. Um, so Mark is definitely Jewish, and yet for whatever reason, Mark's agenda, I don't know if Mark had a special heart for the uh, the Roman Gentile audience, but Mark's audience is Romans. Um, and, and it's particularly that we say Romans. We don't say just Greeks or Gentiles because Mark's audience is a Roman audience. It's not even going to be a Greek audience. Mark's gospel, Mark's euangelion is geared towards and targeting a Roman worldview. 
not even a Greek worldview. And so that's going to make his gospel totally, totally, totally different. Um, so the first thing that we notice if we read Mark's gospel is the pace. Mark's gospel is, it's not just shorter. Like I think a lot of us are like Mark, because when we look at the gospels, we're like, I'll take the one with 16 chapters, please. Um, and it's a quicker read, but it's not just quicker in that it's shorter. It's also quicker because of the pace. Like when you read Mark, it's here's a story. And then immediately Jesus went there and there's a story. And then immediately Jesus went to here. And then immediately after that, Jesus went there. It's like this fast paced. It's not even an exaggeration. Like the word immediately appears in the text. Yes, absolutely. It is one of Mark's favorite words. And either it's his personal favorite word or he's doing it intentionally because of his audience. Um, Romans are Westerners. Uh, they're not Easterners. So uh, in session one and two of our podcast, we've been looking at the scripture as an Eastern book, Eastern methods. And one of the most common things we talk about is, is buried treasure, like all these literary tools, chiasms and parables. And there's all these things that bury meaning and you're supposed to go digging and, and it's long and con- we talk about the Midrash being the long walk around the block when the answer is just right next door. Like that's the Eastern way because of the process of, they think learning happens better when you what, Brent? Can you remember? When you experience it yourself. When you discover it and experience it, right? Well, Romans are not that way. Romans want it now. Romans want it efficiently. Romans want the answer. And so you got to keep a Roman audience entertained. You have to keep a Roman audience moving. And so they are not Easterners who value a treasure hunt buried in the text or an expectation that you would want to work through tough questions in order to unearth amazing truths. I think we can relate to this. I think we are very Roman as Americans. I think part of the angst that we go through when we start listening to Bema and Sessions 1 and 2 is we have to deconstruct this Roman urge. Can you just give me the answer? Can you just tell me? Um, now we're at a place where we're ready to deconstruct that and we actually enjoy this, but in a Roman world, a truly Roman world, Mark knew that that kind of gospel is not going to fly, not for that audience. And so Romans want you to get to the point and to tickle their fancy. And so Mark writes a gospel that is a fast paced tale of all the things Jesus did. He bounces from story to story, keeping characters moving and Jesus very busy, but he also plays to the four pillars of Hellenism. Now, can you remember the four pillars of Hellenism, Brent? What were the four pillars? So we had the gymnasium. The gymnasium. Okay. I'll call that uh, education. Education. Then we had the Oscalopian. Okay. We called that what? Healthcare. Healthcare. Okay. Uh, We had theater. Theater. Entertainment. Call that entertainment. And then we had... That's the one you like to forget all the time. Apparently. Uh... Sports. Yeah, athletics. Coliseum. Arena, Coliseum. Uh, Romans would call it circus, but yeah, uh, Coliseum athletics. And I'll I'll call that competition for our our discussion today. So education, healthcare, entertainment, and competition. What's interesting if you read the Gospel of Mark is you'll notice how much Mark plays to these four pillars. It's like one story, Jesus is this amazing teacher. And that plays to which pillar? To the education. Education pillar. And then all of a sudden, in the next, uh, he's a master teacher. And then the next story, he's an incredible healer of all kinds of conditions. What is that? Healthcare. Healthcare. And then all of a sudden, immediately he goes over here. And the crowds are all, and the word usage of Mark is different than that of Matthew or of Luke. The crowds are amazed. Not just in fear, not trembling, not perplexed, but amazed. They're entertained. They're entertained because it's theater. And then... Uh, and just as as you walk through this, it's very obvious that if you compare Jesus to any other human being, Jesus is the winner. He's the champion. He's If this is a competition, he's the one standing on top of the podium at the end of the day. So Mark is playing to this Roman uh, agenda. 
And it's worth pausing here just to note that I think that that's the reason that so many of us as American Christians prefer the gospel of Mark. Um, in short, we are Romans. We are Westerners. We are cut from the same cloth. It's for the very same reasons that we enjoy the shorter, faster, more entertaining gospel of Mark. Um, but Mark also has an agenda much deeper that we need to hear. One of the, one of the reasons we're going to do this with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in these podcasts is we're going to walk through Matthew to use as our kind of our base text. Um, but I want, to, I want us to have the tools so the next time we're reading Mark or having to study Luke or spending time in John, we have a set of tools to ask a better set of questions to try to understand and unearth whatever that gospel writer is doing. So we want to do that with Mark, not just understand why we prefer it, but we also want to understand what Mark's actual agenda is to a Roman audience. But I would also say that this is exactly the reason why we're not going to use Mark when we walk through. Not only is it the shortest, the the, the briefest, um, most condensed uh, version of Jesus's life and ministry. It's also the one that plays to our fancy. And I think the challenge for us, um, not that the challenge of Mark isn't, gonna, isn't going to still provoke us, but I think we need to hear that message of Matthew that we talked about in our last podcast. Um, but that's definitely going to be uh, something. But let's, let's finish up this conversation of Mark and see where Mark is, is going. One of the differences that we can find uh, in the Gospel of Mark um, is in the crucifixion story. Now, for most of us, I don't think many of us even notice it. But if you're like, like if you went to Bible college, or you're just an astute Bible teacher, or you love to look at uh, gospel apologetics or contradictions in the Bible, you, you may have run across this before. And that is the details of the crucifixion when you compare. The Gospels, particularly what you called the Synoptic Gospels last podcast, if you compare the Gospels, um, the details are different. And so if we're—what was the word we used? We're not going to do what to the Gospels, Brent? We're not going to harmonize We're not going to harmonize. If I am trying to harmonize this, this becomes quite a problem. And I'm going to show you a good example of why harmonizing actually gets in the way here. Because in Mark, we have one detail that's quite interesting. A, Jesus has offered wine mixed with myrrh. Now— um, oh man, you didn't get to come with me to Avdat when we were in Israel and Turkey. We had to cancel that day on your trip, didn't we? My most recent trip got to come to Avdat, and Avdat was a place where they uh, sold wine mixed with myrrh, and it was known as some of the best wine in the ancient world, uh, sold by the Idumean Nabataeans, uh, the people who ran the spice trade. And they had taken myrrh, mixed it in their wine, and it was some of the most expensive wine you could buy. So to read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is offered on the cross wine mixed with myrrh, not that, that's, not that that can't be explained, not that that literally didn't happen, but that's a detail that we just read it and read over it. That's a, that is, he is being offered super expensive wine that is meant for kings. Um, so what is that all about? The other Gospel writers don't record that. It's vinegar. It's very, very cheap wine, if you even want to call it wine. It's... Um, and it's it's given to him in a different spot, which most of us never did you ever realize that Brent that the wine is offered to him in a different location. Where, well, let me just ask you this: Where was the wine offered to Jesus? When uh, when, when when he was on the cross? When he was on so, the cross, yeah. right? And if they put it on a hyssop branch, which by the way, hyssop was also used as toilet paper in the ancient world. So when you're reading the crucifixion story and they offer Jesus wine on a hyssop branch, it's probably used toilet paper. It's all done to mock him. Um, they're taking used toilet paper. They're putting a, a sponge on it with some nasty wine, and they're offering it to him to drink. However, in the Gospel of Mark, that's not where the wine is offered. The wine is offered to Jesus before he's even put on the cross. Now, I remember 
in Bible college dealing with that apologetically, harmonizing that, if you will, and even taking a notice that this was wine mixed with myrrh. So it had to have been two different instances. Jesus, that was how we harmonized it. We said Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh before he was put on the cross. And then after he was on the cross, they were offering him nasty wine, which is that that's a completely legitimate explanation. It's just completely Western (laughs) and void of the things that we've been talking about in our last two podcasts. Is there something more going on in this record of the crucifixion uh, that we need to see here coming from a Jewish author to a Roman audience? One of the things that we're going to look at uh, here is what's called a coronation. When an emperor was coronated... There was a ceremony as they became emperor, as they were crowned emperor, they would have a public coronation. It was one of the ways that they spread their own euangelion. Um, They would spread, I think I even mentioned this a couple of podcasts ago, they would spread their euangelion on money, currency. They would spread it using advents. They would spread it uh, using parousias. They would spread it uh, using coronations. This is one of the ways that they would spread their euangelion, a big public show of pomp and circumstance. And, uh, We have a few records of a handful of different coronations from Roman history. The one that we have most detailed record of is the coronation of Nero, which, by the way, is right around the pinning of the Gospel of Mark, depending on how you date it. Um, It would have been direct context, and Nero would have been the emperor to who? Uh Not a trick question. To the Romans. To the Romans. And that's whose audience? Mark's audience. So this is going to be really... Um, relevant in my mind context. So I want to give you the nine steps. Now, we're not trying to suggest that every single emperor had the exact same nine steps in all of their coronations, but we can say that the coronations followed a typical outline. And in Nero's coronation, we have these nine steps outlined for us in very unique detail. By the way, the scholar who did the work on this, his name is Thomas E. Schmidt. Um, Thomas E. Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. And uh, he was a scholar out of Oxford. So he's the one that's kind of known for this body of work. I heard it from Ray Vanderlaan on one of my trips, but he's the scholar that's behind the work here. Um, nine steps. I'm going to give you nine steps to go, uh, to go through here. I had a typical Roman coronation, Nero's coronation. We had step number one, the Praetorian Guard gathers in some form of uh, courtyard known as a Praetorian. That's step number one, the Praetorian Guard gathers. Uh, step number two, the royal robes are placed on the emperor. He's given a, a, a wreath as a crown and a scepter. And they are, the robe is placed on his shoulders, the crown on his head, the scepter in his hand. Step number three, they lead this new Caesar, the emperor, through a procession uh, down the street, usually lined with incense altars uh, as they walk in that procession. Uh, step number four, Christ, uh, uh, Caesar, is followed uh, by a sacrifice. In Nero's case, it was a bull. Um, oh, I had the notes, and they're not with me. Uh, a Vespasian, I cannot remember what his animal was, but they have a sacrifice, and they lead that sacrifice behind them, and the emperor carries the instrument of death, um, whatever that instrument is going to be. Um, they have, uh, Step number five. They arrive at Capitoline Hill. Uh, Rome was a city built on what? Brent, what's the statement? You went to Rome. You've been to... I have been to Rome. You've been to Rome. What did they call it? The city built on... I don't know. The city on seven hills. Seven hills. There were seven hills. Rome had these small seven... Kind of like a, and many of our urban cities, we might have 
um, uh, bergs or um, what do they call them in the eastern? All my listeners from the East Coast right now are going, you've got to be Burrows. kidding Burrows. and uh, what do they call them in New York? Well, yeah, the five boroughs of New York. Uh, are That's they boroughs? Thinking, okay. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Okay, so so seven hills of Rome. And the, the tallest hill is where they had put all of your central, the temple to Caesar, the temple to Zeus. Uh, the temple to Caesar is what eventually stood there. Temple to Augustus. Um, that was on Capitoline Hill. It basically means head hill. Capitoline Hill. Um, uh, and actually, the the myth behind it is the temple sits there because as they were preparing the ground, uh, they dug up the head of, if I remember correctly, um, the head of Romulus, uh, as the myth tells it. And it wasn't just the skull of Romulus, but it was actually a severed head with hair and eyeballs and flesh and head. So there's a word in the Greek, there's a word in the Hebrew, there's a word in the Latin to being um, skull. But that's not what this. It's it's cap, cap, ooh, it's capit, capete. I can't remember what it is, but it's capitoline comes from that root word of head hill. Um, Caesar is offered wine uh, mixed with myrrh, but he refuses it. He pours it out just to show his preeminence, his need for nothing, uh, his absolute preeminence. Uh, step number six, the bull is killed or the animal, whatever that sacrificial animal, the bull is killed. Caesar uh, pronounces death or life on a host of prisoners. They've taken uh, a bunch of prisoners and they've pulled them in front of the crowds and Caesar's going to walk through this crowd of prisoners and he's just going to choose some. You live. He'll point to the next one. You die. You die. You live. You live. You die. Just to demonstrate that Caesar has the power over life and death. Step number seven, the emperor ascends the steps of the temple with the high priest of the 24 legal Roman religions on his right and uh, the leading commander of his armies on his left. Uh, Step number eight, Caesar is acclaimed Lord and God as people sing his praises. People, as he ascends the steps, he gets to the top of the steps of the temple, and everybody acclaims him, Lord and God. Hail Caesar, Lord and God. Hail Caesar, Lord and God. And then step number nine, the final step, is everybody waits for a sign, a sign from the heavens. And in Nero's coronation, we know, we know from the history record uh, that there was, a, there was an eclipse. I can't remember if it was a full solar eclipse, a lunar, I can't remember what kind of eclipse it was, but there was an eclipse that happened. Now, most all the historians debate, like, did he get lucky? Obviously, his astronomers probably knew that that was going to happen, but it coincided with his coronation, and the crowds went wild. Obviously, this is the man that we want as our king. So, now, we go to Mark's record of the crucifixion, and now some of these questions, instead of just saying, well, maybe he was given wine mixed with myrrh before the cross, and then other wine on the cross, maybe there's a better explanation here. And so... Brent, you have before you Mark 15, verses 16 through 33. All right? That's the passage that Brent is going to be looking at. We're not going to read every single verse there, but I think our listeners will catch on pretty quickly what's happening here. I want to walk through those nine steps again, and Brent's going to read me some corresponding verses, okay? So uh, step number one, the Praetorian Guard gathers to hail Caesar as Lord and God. So verse 16 says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. That's interesting. They called together the whole company of soldiers 
just for a Jewish peasant on trial before Pilate in the middle of the night. And then they're calling together the whole Praetorian Guard. I mean, maybe that happened. Maybe that literally happened. Maybe they called together. I don't have a problem with that. Or as Mark plain to his audience that they called together the whole Praetorian Guard. Interesting. Step number two, royal robes, a wreath crown, and a scepter are placed on Caesar. So starting in verse 17, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. All right. Step number three, they lead Caesar through a procession lined with incense altars. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, Brent, you're just reading through this passage verse by verse. These steps are being followed in order, verse by verse. You haven't skipped a verse at all yet, right? Correct. And you're not jumping around to make this case. Nope. This is very deliberate on Mark's part. Um, Let's see here. Step number five, they arrive at Capitoline Hill. Uh, Caesar is, oh, no, 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 excuse me. I skipped a Skip to step. Verse four. Caesar is followed by the sacrifice, in Nero's case, a bull, and he carries the instrument of death. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Excellent. Uh, they arrive. Step number five. They arrive at Capitoline Hill. Caesar is offered uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he refuses it and pours it out. Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Oh, but it doesn't, right? (laughs) Brent knew that, so he played right into my hands there on purpose. Also, verse 23, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Yeah, okay, so so verse 22 there, uh, Golgotha does not mean place of of the skull. It means, uh, I mean, there's a whole, if you ever go to Jerusalem, there's a garden tomb and a place called Golgotha where they say, uh, they've never made the claim that Jesus was buried there because the tomb is about 200 to 300 years way too old. Uh, every scholar that's ever stood in there went, this isn't the right tomb. We all know that, but they won't necessarily tell you that. They'll play to it like that might be a possible location. It's not a possible location. And outside of that is Golgotha, which is a hill that kind of looks like a skull. And they use this verse to kind of hype that up. The problem is it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean it in the Aramaic. doesn't mean it in the Greek. It means... What did we say, Brent? Not place of the skull, but place of the head. Head. Uh, and it's very, very particular about that. They're leading him to Head Hill. Um, uh, not the literal Head Hill, but again, Mark is playing to an agenda. He's trying to make the crucifixion look like a coronation. Let's see here. Let's go next step. Um, now, step number six the bull is killed. Caesar is pronounced. Uh, Caesar pronounces death or life to a host of prisoners, demonstrating that he has the power of life and death. Uh, Verse 24, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. All right. Uh, Let's go. We're going to probably skip a verse in Mark, but let's go uh, verse number seven. The emperor ascends the steps of the temple with the high priest on his right and the commander of his armies on his left. Uh, Verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. All right. Uh, How about uh, step number eight? Caesar is acclaimed Lord and God as people sing his praises. Uh, Starting in verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. All right, and finally, uh, step number nine, they wait for a sign from the heavens. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. All right, so it is obvious here uh, that Mark is telling the crucifixion story step by step as Jesus' coronation. And this shows us that Mark has a problem. If Mark is communicating this gospel to a Roman audience, the problem that he has is Romans believe in a particular kind of strength. We've said that this is always a tale of two uh, kingdoms, right, Brent? A tale of what, what two kingdoms? Empire and Shalom. Empire and Shalom. And Rome, without a doubt, believes in what? Empire. Empire. And what were the words that we used to talk about empire? They take everything. They get what they need. They don't care if someone else doesn't have what they need. Yeah. When we said Shalom was voice, we said empire was? Uh, stick. Stick. When we said uh, Shalom was trust, we said empire was? Mistrust. Yeah. And force. Uh, force. Fear. Like yeah. these are the words we use. Rome is all about victory. Conquest. You see, Mark's um, challenge, if he wants to give a euangelion to Romans, is how do you convince Romans that the guy that they need to follow and worship was a guy that was crucified and executed by their imperial system. To a Roman, that's not strength. That's defeat. And Mark tells his gospel in such a way that when you get to Jesus' defeat, he does not tell it as a defeat, but he tells it as Jesus' greatest moment of triumph. Not his worst moment of defeat, but his greatest moment of triumph. And Mark says, this is where Shalom wins the day. In fact, if you read Mark, who's the, who's the first person to actually acknowledge Jesus's identity as the son of God? Uh, is it one of the, is it that Roman centurion? Yep. A Roman centurion, right? Uh, this is the agenda that Mark has. He's trying to confront, listen, Jesus is your guy. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great healer. Jesus is a, is an incredible entertainer. Jesus is an amazing athlete, whatever, whatever you want to call that, an amazing competitor. Jesus is everything you're looking for. Jesus, 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 fast paced, boom, boom, boom. And then you get to his crucifixion. And Mark's whole point is, but this kingdom doesn't come like the kingdom that you're used to. And so what does this end up provoking? Well, it ends up provoking an incredibly odd ending to the gospel. Um, if you uh, are in your Bibles and you turn the page to uh, Mark 16, um, uh, you get a really weird footnote. You read through the first eight verses of Mark 16, uh, and you get to Mark 16, 8. And read me 16, 8, uh, Brent. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Right. And then Mark goes on, but there's a big footnote. If your Bible doesn't have a footnote, throw your Bible away and get a new one. Um, what does your footnote say and you know, what you're looking at there, Brent? Uh, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. All right. Verses 9 through 20 are not in our earliest manuscripts. And you can imagine why when you looked at that and you go, man, that's how the verse ends. The women go away trembling and afraid. Well, we must be missing something. That can't be how the gospel ends. And so somewhere along the way, a century or two in, we add an ending to the gospel of Mark. In fact, you actually have more footnotes than your standard Bible does. What do the rest of your footnotes say, Brent? So there's verses 9 through 20, but there's also another chunk uh, that is sometimes added between 8 and 9, and sometimes uh, the extra chunk is just the end, and then 9 through 20 isn't there. Okay, so, so let's walk through this. There's three potential endings. Yeah, there's three. Is there? There's four potential endings, right? So 
Uh, Our earliest manuscripts end where, Brent? At verse 8. At verse 8. Read it again. This is our earliest manuscripts. It ends how? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay. And then some manuscripts end with, read me the section that it, it tags under the end of that. Then they quickly reported all these instructions to those around Peter. After this, Jesus himself also sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. Which you made the comment when we were preparing for this podcast uh, sarcastically. Sure sounds an awful lot like Mark, doesn't it? Like uh, the language is different. It's all, it's like this really awkward, like you can tell it's this tagged on ending. Even in English, it sounds like it doesn't belong. <laughs> the imperishable, which is used by Paul. It is not used by Mark. Like it's just a totally different Greek. It's, it's just awkward and clumsy and clunky. But then, so then that's one, that's the second possible ending. The third possible ending is that there are, there are manuscripts that have that ending you just read and verses 9 through 20, right? Yep. And then there are some manuscripts that throw out the alternate ending that you had and just go 8 through 9 through 20. Right. Okay? So we have four possible endings to this gospel. It's important to realize the earliest manuscripts end at verse 8. And and even if you read 9 through 20, it's a little cleaner than the little chunk you read us. It still has the exact same issues. It's draped in in what I'm going to call Christian ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Like those that aren't baptized will pair. Like it's not the language of Mark. It's not the Greek of Mark. It's not the theology of Mark. It's not. And this is my opinion. I think that that footnote about manuscripts is so important in your Bible because 9 through 20 is not supposed to be in there. 9 through 20 was not written by Mark. Your gospel is supposed to end at verse 8. And when you understand Mark's agenda and Mark's audience, it makes sense. Because if you're a Roman, let me actually read what I wrote here because I chose my words. I tried to choose my words carefully. Any Roman who reads Mark's gospel and accepts it is going to feel just like those women. If they affirm the truth that Jesus is a better king, their Roman life as they know it is over. They have much to fear. How are the women in that last verse? Trembling and bewildered. Trembling and bewildered. That's exactly how, if you're about ready to say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. I believe in Jesus's coronation, not Nero's. Remember what Nero did to Christians. You are going to be trembling and bewildered. And so much like the story of the prodigal son, Mark leaves this ending open-ended and unwritten inviting the Roman readers to consider what they believe to be the truest true about the world and what brings real peace. This is our great challenge as Roman readers. Do we really want to choose the triumph of Jesus? It runs counter to everything that our worldview says is power. They had to deal with Pax Romana. We have to deal with Pax Americana in our world. It runs to this day. It still runs contrary to what we believe is true power. Yet Mark confronts our worldview and invites us to consider, as we possibly sit trembling and bewildered and afraid of the implications, whether or not we'd like to believe this gospel of a new king and a better kingdom. Just having some context allows Mark's gospel to come to life for us as we read it, as we understand what he's trying to accomplish. And I love a little just P.S. here. When you were reading, who carried the cross and what kind of note was made in that verse? Can you remember, Brent? Uh, Simon, 
Yes. The from Cyrene. Yes. And he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Listen, in the middle of the crucifixion story, that seems like an odd detail yeah, to throw I, in. I there. was gonna ask about it, but it seemed like it was yeah. not where we were yeah. headed it's with that. So a little weird, right? If you're reading Romans in the greetings, Paul sends out a shout out to two particular individuals. Just guess who they are, Brent. It's got to be Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus. To which letter? The letter to the who? To the Romans. To the Romans. And now Mark's gospel, a gospel to the... Romans. Romans throws in... Why? Because if I read the letter to the Romans, Alexander and Rufus are a part of the church in Rome. Like when you... Can you imagine having this gospel read for the first time? And Mark's like, Simon of Cyrene and Alexander and Rufus sit there, I imagine, in like tears... Like our dad carried the cross and there are people in the room like turning to look at them. That was your dad? It's just so much context comes out of that. It's not just Simon of Cyrene, follower of Alexander. No, Alexander and Rufus are like in the Roman crowd. Like they're they're listening to the story. So juicy. Love that little tidbit. That would have been something to have been in the room as Alexander and Rufus when they heard this gospel for the first time. Cool. So you're telling me Mark is not this like lazy gospel for people who just don't care about anything and want to get through it as quickly as possible. You're telling me he actually, yeah, he was actually doing something. Yeah. And, and I think that this again, and, and I'm not trying to throw all these other critical thinkers under the bus, but I think that we, we always looked at Mark and went, well, Mark's the first gospel because it's the quickest and it's the shortest. And then Matthew took the same material and wanted to expand on it. And those are totally possible explanations. They're just totally Western. Um, it's just totally analytical. And we just look at it. We analyze it. We use our logic rather than using the same hermeneutical principles to ask who's the author, who's the audience, and what is their agenda. I think Matthew was written first. And I think Mark is the one that goes, ah, that's a good gospel. And you're using all that Q source material, but no Roman's going to listen to that, Matthew. And Matthew's like, yeah, well, sure, I didn't write it to the Romans. I'm writing it to the Jews. And Mark's like, wow, man, we need to get a gospel out to the Romans. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rework your gospel. I'm gonna make it Roman, and Matthew goes, "Man, go for it." And Mark does it. So now we need to think about Luke. Next week. So would you say that Mark is the most Western book in the Bible? That is a really, really good question. I mean, it certainly is up to this point. I know we've got a lot of uh, yeah Gentile audience books coming up. You know, I, I do. Yeah, the most the way you phrase that, I think without a doubt, I can't think of anything else that I would say is more Western than Mark. Some people are going to be listening to this going, what about Luke? Some of these are going to be thinking, well, what about Galatians? Or like there might be maybe more Greek. That would be a trickier one for me to think through. But more Western? No way. This is, this is the most Western book in your Bible. Because the book of Mark is solely written to yeah. a Western audience. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas so many of the other ones have uh-huh. more of a mixed audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Well, sounds good. Uh, Fun time. Fun time in the book of Mark. A couple more Gospels to go uh, coming up in the weeks to come. Uh, So if you have any uh, questions, feel free to get a hold of us on Twitter. You can find Marty at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, Check out BamonEstablishup.com. It's got all the information you need to uh, find out more about the podcast or find a discussion group or whatever you need. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.